Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah, your host and a MedPeats ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and chat with ID discussants to learn more about high-yield ID topics. Today, I am joined by co-host Dr. Jimmy McCluskey. Jimmy is an internal medicine and pediatrics or MedPeds resident at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Next, I'll welcome our guest discussant today, who is Dr. Alice Sato. Alice is an assistant professor in the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. She also serves as the hospital epidemiologist for Children's Hospital and Medical Center. Hello, thanks for having us. Well, before we start with the case, as everyone's favorite culture podcast, we always like to ask one question about sharing a little piece of culture that brings you happiness. So maybe I'll start with you, Jimmy. Uh, Thanks. Uh, Not very far off from medicine, but uh, I really love Paul Offit's books and recently went through Overkill on Audible. Um, Would recommend, but of course, all of his books are great. So yeah, love it. What about you, Alice? I have learned that I tend to binge on things once I pick them up. I go through little spurts. So at one point in my life, I had realized I hadn't read any Jane Austen, so I read all of it. And so currently, I am a little bit heavy in the Hank and John Green world. I had watched Crash Course World History ages ago with my kids, and we had enjoyed that a lot. And somehow I stumbled back into them recently. So I've been listening to Dear Hank and John, and my son bought me uh, Looking for Alaska. And sort of a corollary to that, if you're aware of Hank Green's interest in Mars and such, I have been spending a lot of time just being calm, looking at James Webb space telescope images, which are amazing and beautiful and just spectacular to look at. Yeah, it's it's so difficult to even comprehend that. I've been watching like um, YouTube videos of my husband to have someone explain to me what I'm looking at, because otherwise I would just focus on the fact that they're quite pretty. But I know they're also uh, bringing us a lot of knowledge that we didn't have before. Um, great. Well, I am going to hand it over to Jimmy to tell us about the case today. Great. Thanks. So I'll jump right in. Uh, In November of 2021, an otherwise healthy three-year-old male presented to the ED accompanied by his mother, uh, reporting a three-day history of fever, fatigue, decreased appetite, and one day of an erythematous but non-paritic rash around the eyes, mouth, neck, upper back, axilla, groin, and uh, notably no involvement of the palms or soles. Mother did not have a thermometer over this time, but reported a high tactile fever that did not resolve with Tylenol or ibuprofen. Review of systems that was obtained at that time was notable for cough and congestion, emesis, and diarrhea. Mother reported having uh, mild symptomatic COVID-19 about one month prior, but the patient was never tested. Patient otherwise had an unremarkable history, no hospitalizations, no surgeries, no allergies, no prescription medications, and was up to date on immunizations. Social history was the patient lived at home with mother, father, two healthy siblings, grandmother babysat, so no daycare, and there was no pets. Vital signs in the emergency room, 
patient was febrile, 39.8 Celsius. Heart rate was tachycardic at 164. Blood pressure was 97 over 49. Respiratory rate 36, saturating 100% on room air. And then I'll just give an exam here and we can take a short break then. So other than the tachycardia and the tachypnea, there was no other frank abnormalities on exam. Notably, conjunctiva was normal, mucous membranes appeared normal. You notice this rash, which mother reports uh, during the exam was resolving. So it was a little bit of periorbital erythema at that time, but uh, wasn't diffuse. So generally improved from prior. What you hear from the emergency department at this time is that due to this exposure to COVID-19 and the abnormalities, they're starting a pretty broad workup. um, And they've already spoken with cardiology who recommended uh, EKG and an echo, which were normal. Uh, The labs are kind of pending at this point, but we'll get some broad ones here. So the concern here um, is for MISC, but also there's a, a broad differential. And, and so ID is made aware of the patient at this time, uh, even prior to admission. And so they're kind of calling for your thoughts and seeing if you have anywhere to steer the case. Great. So uh, there are a bunch of important factors that you have touched on. Uh, one is how the case presents. Another is the epidemiologic link, right? So we don't have any testing directly on this boy yet, but you do have the exposure to mom's known infection. And that's within, you know, the two to six weeks that we typically think about for MISC. So that's important. Uh, as an infectious disease doctor, particularly a, a pediatric infectious disease doctor, Recently, I feel a little weird talking about what's seasonal and what's not seasonal, but for my differential diagnosis, uh, there's certainly fewer tick-borne diseases, fewer mosquito-borne diseases in a patient presenting in November, but I do think about that as part of my differential for a child with fever and a rash. So uh, I try to make sure I'm thinking about all those non-MISC things as well. Sometimes, particularly early on, I would challenge people to cast their mind back to 2019 and say, if this kid had walked into your ER in 2019, what would you have worried about? Because I think it's very easy for people to get going down a pathway to think about MISC, and I certainly want them to think about MISC, but I also want them to think about other things that I would need to treat and need to treat differently. So the other thing that I find helpful, since I think a lot of trainees listen to this podcast, is to ask the family if they have pictures on their phones. Because describing rashes is not the same as seeing them. And it is very, very helpful to be able to see what's on the phone. Yeah, I love that advice about looking on uh, asking for photos. It's one of my favorite questions. So the main concern I'm being called about at this moment is for MISC, which stands for Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children Associated with Coronavirus Disease or COVID-19. So that has a definition that we'll discuss later, but that's the syndrome we're worried about. So other than fever and rash, the main complaint I'm hearing in this child is diarrhea or GI symptoms. And GI symptoms are 
definitely a prominent part of MISC. It can be abdominal pain. It can be severe abdominal pain. It can seem like appendicitis. So it can be quite acute. But we also get reports from patients of sore throat, vomiting, diarrhea, and other signs of GI involvement. Great. Okay. I'll give you some more labs here to help with the differential diagnosis. So these are all uh, pretty broadly obtained in the emergency department. We have a chemistry panel with a sodium of 127, chloride 92. Uh, Bicarb is 21. Creatinine is normal at 0.3. And albumin is slightly low at 3.2. The bilirubin and the liver function tests were normal. Hemoglobin slightly low at 10.1 with a low MCV at 79.8. No leukocytosis at 9.2 for the white blood cell count, 68% neutrophils, 15% bands. Absolute lymphocyte count is 1.29, which is normal. Platelets are slightly low at 139. CRP is elevated at 15.5. Procalcitonin is elevated at 7.44. Ferritin is 617. Brain natriuretic peptide, or BNT, is 15,819. Troponin is normal at less than 0.04. LDH is slightly elevated at 469, and D-dimer is elevated at 3.98. And that's in grams per liter. So for some labs, I know they measure in nanograms, so this would be the equivalent of 3,980 at some labs. Um, They also obtained other testing. So the Respiratory virus panel and a monospot were negative. They obtained urine, which was had an unremarkable UA. Blood and urine cultures were sent. I already shared the EKG and the echo findings. Chest x-ray was obtained, showed increased interstitial markings, and she was given acetaminophen and ceftriaxone before being admitted. And so does any of those labs help you narrow the differential or expand on anything? So you certainly have evidence of inflammation, right? And CRP here is per deciliter, not per liter. So that's another one where the units can be much higher or lower. So it's usually good to check with the hospital you're speaking with what units they're using because that might be a little bit abnormal or it might be a lot abnormal. So that's pretty high for us, right? It would be 159 elsewhere. Uh, the sodium is low, the albumin's on the lower side. So there's definitely other signs that there's inflammation, possibly uh, somewhat leaky vasculature. Uh, the pro-BNP and troponin are looking a little bit at the heart. Now, we've jumped ahead because we have the EKG and the echo already. But if you are considering MISC, uh, the heart and the cardiovascular involvement is very much a feature, a very prominent feature present in the vast majority of children with it. So the troponin is less than 0.4, so that doesn't show any evidence of leak. Pro-BMP, I feel like cardiologists have told me, and I am not a cardiologist, but they have explained to me that that has more to do with your volume status typically. So that is altered by things other than direct damage to the myocardium, for example. Uh, D-dimer, we have learned in the last two and a half years 
that that can be abnormal in febrile children, and it can be quite abnormal in febrile children. We never used to check it almost ever in children. So initially, we thought that that was a bit more directly diagnostic than we have realized that it is. So I have seen that abnormal in children with Rocky Mountain spotted fever. I've seen it abnormal in children with other infections like brucellosis or sepsis or toxic shock. So that in and of itself is also not diagnostic. There's no one test that really is diagnostic for this. So we're we're pattern seeking here. Um, lymphopenia, we often see. Now, I will say that like in any patient, these labs are a snapshot in time. And we have definitely seen children progress from, I don't know, I'm not sure, over a couple days to, there is no way you would miss this diagnosis in this child. So sometimes we have to watch them and follow them over a few days to have a better sense of where it's going and whether it does fit or doesn't fit. And to reevaluate and relook at them and keep an eye on them and see if we think that's where we're going. Absolutely. So we have a great differential here and uh, we all know what we're worried about, which is MISC. Is there a specific case definition or something that you go to to define that? You already said we're looking for a pattern, but. In May of 2020, we had heard rumors of a Kawasaki-like syndrome being reported mostly in Europe, in Italy, and in the UK, and then on the coasts. And we started to hear more about these cases of children with an unusual inflammatory condition. And in May of 2020, um, AHAN and HAN was released with a case definition that was provided for this. So that is the definition that we use in the United States. Uh, it is defined as being in children. So under age 21, there is also MISA, which is in adults, the main difference being age. Uh, and then laboratory evidence of inflammation and evidence of clinically severe illness requiring hospitalization with multi-system, so that's the M, organ involvement, heart, kidney, respiratory, hematologic, GI, dermatologic, or neurologic. In addition, no plausible alternative diagnosis, and that's a biggie, because quite frequently we're debating and we are evaluating children for this, but we might find pyelonephritis, or we might find evidence of a secondary bacterial pneumonia. So they may have sepsis, from their other infection, for example, and meet these other criteria of having fever and inflammation and multi-system involvement. But that does not mean that it must also be MISC. And then the other part of that definition was initially very reliant on an epidemiologic link to someone with SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, because at the time the definition was crafted there was very little testing available. Children were generally not tested. And there was less reliance or the antibody tests that were available were not as dependable early on because many tests were released 
and allowed to be used under EUA, but they were not necessary, necessarily validated. And different tests had different performance. And so you might have tested a patient and gotten a positive, or you might not have. And furthermore, even though it, it is a syndrome that is following an infection with SARS-CoV-2, many of the children were asymptomatic with their original infection. So that there was no reason to test them at the time that the rest of their family was tested, for example. And then when we looked for antibodies, they um, may or may not have tested positive on a particular antibody test that was sent. But when we found it early on, we were like, aha, that's it. We have a kid who fits the definition. We think their family had it a month ago and they have antibodies. Now think about where we are now. Finding positive antibodies in a child as evidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection, if you use a test that detects spike antibody and they've been vaccinated, then you're going to have a positive test whether or not they've had an infection. Or you get a test and it is positive. I don't know whether they got infected a month ago or a year ago. I don't know, unless they also got tested at that time with a PCR. So nowadays, when I find a positive antibody, it can be supportive, but it is not necessarily proof that they have a recent SARS-CoV-2 infection. So that's in the definition, but you're trying to get a sense of whether this really fits that post-infectious picture. It's kind of the same as when you're looking for rheumatic, acute rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease in children following a streptococcal infection. The question is, do they have strep and they have fever and a rash and heart involvement now? Or have they had strep previously in the past and it's not relevant to what's happening with them right now? So we have to think about that timeline and try and build a case that it fits this syndrome. Great. I'll, I'll ask too, in addition to the studies that you already have, is there anything for this patient specifically that you think is missing or that you would want to expand on? Or do you have most of the information you need right now as far as lab testing goes? And So I would say I don't need so much testing as I need to be sure that everyone's involved who should be involved. So I would make sure that if it was not part of a protocol that someone had talked to hematology about that D-dimer and whether they need to do any prophylaxis to prevent development of uh, thrombosis somewhere. They've clearly already called cardiology, so we know cardiology is following. Um, at this moment, I don't think we necessarily need rheumatology involved, although some places bring in rheumatology right away. We... Um, were understaffed for rheumatology early on. So uh, we also relied on um, one of our helpful immunologists for some of our cases who would help us with um, other treatment options and assessment of uh, inflammatory disorders or inflammatory complications. So it's nice to have a good robust team of people who are used to seeing these children. I'll take us to, to the next portion of the case here. So once the patient was admitted, uh, he developed acute hypotension 
And on examination, uh, we heard from the admitting team that there was increased edema of his hands and extremities. Labs were obtained at this time, showed a new troponin elevation to 0.114, and a new echocardiogram was also obtained, showed a decreased reduced uh, left ejection fraction of 40% and a mildly dilated RCA or right coronary artery. Don't have an exact Z-score on that. And the hypotension that developed was quite severe and actually required epinephrine infusion and a transfer to the ICU. And so they're looking for help with management at this time too. So like I was saying, some of these kids do progress. Some of them progress quite quickly and you're happy that they've made it to your institution. I would say that we still have to consider what our differential is in terms of treatment, but given some of those findings, I am definitely much more in the mindset of this being MISC because now what you have is a combination of fever, inflammation, cardiac, and GI, which are our main symptoms or uh, systems that are involved in most of our patients. And I will say as far as cardiac involvement goes, it can be progressive and it can be lots of different things. We have had children with systolic dysfunction. We've had children with valvulitis. We've had children with diastolic dysfunction, conduction disorders. We had a kid who required a pacemaker. We've had a kid require ECMO. Uh, Many children have developed hypotension and needed a lot of blood pressure and cardiovascular support. Some children require ventilation, partly uh, to help manage them for their cardiac complications as well. This child did not present initially with any renal disease, but we have had some children with significant renal involvement, whether that's due to hypotension and AKI or due to direct involvement of the kidneys, not always clear, but they require quite careful management and are very frequently in the ICU. So in this child, you're telling me there's some coronary artery involvement that takes my differential and puts it more between MISC and Kawasaki disease, which is the disease that people thought this looked like the most initially. Given this patient's age, I do think Kawasaki disease is more of a consideration because we see that mostly in younger children. Coronary artery involvement, for at least my experience of our patients here at Children's Hospital Medical Center in Omaha, of slightly over 100 children, we've actually had very few with true aneurysms of the coronary arteries, but we've had many children who've had increased Z-scores or dilation of those coronary arteries that do reverse uh, over time. So we've seen coronary involvement, but not quite the same as Kawasaki. I still worry about things like sepsis, toxic shock, uh, other uh, syndromes. Certainly rheumatologic syndromes can uh, sometimes present in this way. But given the combination of symptoms and the way this child presented and their epidemiologic risk, I would go ahead and treat them as if they have MISC. And I feel pretty confident that that is a good diagnosis for this child. So I would start treatment. 
In children who have milder disease, we might start with what I consider a relatively low dose of steroids, one to two per kilo. Uh, and we at our institution have used IVIG at two grams per kilo. Uh, initially, we were more likely to give a second dose of that, but later guidelines have uh, sort of gone away from giving a second dose, but we do have many children who got that early on. The reason we used those treatments was really based on Kawasaki disease treatment because we were suddenly faced with having these very sick children and no ability to rely on prior information for a disease that had not previously existed. So what happened was people at different institutions used what they were comfortable using. And so uh, most places were comfortable starting with steroids and with IVIG because we were making the analogy to Kawasaki disease while recognizing it's not the same disease. And many children improved with that combination. There's been a couple studies suggesting that having a little bit of steroids, even in your milder patients, is helpful uh, compared to IVIG alone. In children who are progressing or refractory or more severe with more shock, we tended to go to higher doses of steroids in our institution, between 10 and up to 30 per kilo per day, which is a very, very high dose of steroids to use. We also used anakinra, which is an IL-1 active agent, because we found that also helped with the inflammatory state. Now, depending on which institution you were at and who your cardiology and rheumatology buddies were, people used what they were used to using. So they might pick a different biologic based on what they had the most experience with in treating refractory Kawasaki with shock, for example. So there was some differences in how treatment was given, and now we're doing studies. So it's uh, it was a little bit building the plane while you were flying it in terms of figuring out treatment, especially in that first wave of children, where we had quite a number of children and not necessarily any experience in treating so that we were communicating with each other across the country and around the world. So our cardiologist was contacting all the cardiologists in their Kawasaki networks and their rheumatic fever networks. And I was contacting a bunch of infectious disease doctors and WhatsApp groups with pings from the middle of the night uh, from Italian uh, people on that group. So it's their daytime and I wasn't necessarily up yet, but I would look and read and see what they'd said because I would, wanted as much help as we could get for our patients. And so it really showed cooperation. Rheumatologists were talking to their buddies. Everybody reached out and shared their experience, which was a wonderful thing. And groups formed to discuss this and many Kawasaki groups pivoted and included these children in studies. Um, so uh, we enrolled children in studies uh, that were looking at comparing these diseases now as well. 
And what we realized early on was we had zero follow-up information about what happens with these children, whether it recurs, anything like that. So we did say we're going to need to follow them and figure out what happens. But acutely, we, we conferred with our buddies and we came up with treatment plans focused on cutting down on the inflammation because it really seemed like that, similar to COVID-19 itself, was a situation where the worsening was due to the inflammation. Many of these children did not have a positive RVP or positive PCR at the time that they presented. So there wasn't evidence for ongoing virus as a large component, at least in the nasopharynx where we were looking. We don't know in the tissues whether or not there is virus there, of course. So it wasn't clear that an antiviral strategy was necessarily what was needed versus an anti-inflammatory strategy. So we found that when we treated inflammation, we did see them improve over time. But individual children would have a different level of, of inflammation and how much help they needed. And in general, the younger kids, uh, the under fives, don't end up in the ICU and they do fine with a little bit of steroid and IVIG. And our older children and teens, we often would see a third to a half of them ending up in the ICU, sometimes a little bit higher, and needing a lot of support and needing more aggressive treatment. The number of children where we really, really needed to give a lot of uh, immune suppression was fortunately fewer. (laughs) But we definitely had a large number of children needing ICU care. Awesome. I can um, resolve the case here and then uh, talk about which uh, treatments this patient received. So uh, after being in the ICU for a day, uh, he completed IVIG, improved within 24 hours, was weaned from the vasopressors, was able to transfer back to the floor. Cardiology did recommend enalapril, an ACE inhibitor, and uh, low-dose aspirin, which the patient was started on. Labs at that time were notable for a white blood cell count that was normal, uh, no more had, no longer had a left shift. Uh, hemoglobin was improving. It was 8.1 from its nadir at 7.3. Platelets were quite low uh, at the time of transfer to the ICU at 107, but were improving at this time at 119. CRP was downtrending. It was 7.4 at the time of transfer to the floor. He completed three days of methylprednisolone and was sent out on a prednisolone taper. Blood cultures remained negative. Antibiotics were stopped. Uh, part of the workup included a serum enterovirus RNA, which was negative. SARS-CoV-2 antibodies were sent and did return with a positive for nucleocapsid and core. And at the two-week follow-up visit, um, a new echo had been obtained and showed a left ventricular ejection fraction at 62%, which was improved. And cardiology saw the patient at the follow-up appointment, recommended that he continue aspirin and enalapril, the aspirin for one month and the enalapril for a total of three months. And so at this point in the case, um, is there further follow-up that you recommend or other things that you continue to follow? So again, we decided that we didn't know what we didn't know. So our institution was relatively conservative. 
And so we planned follow-up, at least for our initial patients, over a prolonged period of time because we didn't know whether they would fully resolve or whether they would have the potential to get it again with a new infection. So if you think about strep and rheumatic fever, if you get another case of strep, you can get rheumatic fever again. So we didn't know what would happen with that. So I think everywhere did at least two-week and six-week follow-up, again, very analogous to Kawasaki follow-up. Following those children, we got repeat echoes, particularly on children who had significant heart involvement at the beginning. Of our children with heart involvement, they basically all resolved by three-month follow-up. And we have followed some of them now for two years. Um, And they seem to do well. We don't know long-term whether there'll be any associated ongoing problems because we just don't know yet. But I think it's very promising that if you treat their inflammation, it seems to get better. We have looked at carefully at a couple children when they got re-exposed to try and decide whether there was a recurrence risk. And it really doesn't seem like it. There's a paper looking at a child who had two episodes that seemed as if they might both be MISC, but it might have been something else also. It's hard to know yet. Uh, And in general, of the thousands of children that have been reported, we have not seen them report getting MISC again. So that is very promising and hopeful to us. And there have been over 8,600 children reported to the CDC at this point. So I think we, if there was a high rate of relapse with reinfection, we would probably know that by now, just because so many children have been exposed to reinfection since their initial MISC event. The other part that makes us think that that's correct is the response to vaccination. So being vaccinated versus never having been infected cuts the risk of developing MISC about 200-fold. So it's really, really, really protective against developing MISC. We had a little worry that MISC could perhaps be triggered by the spike protein response to vaccine. So that was very closely watched. Uh, When we look at the vaccine-associated myocarditis, it is a very different type of heart inflammation than what we see in children with MISC. It has a very sudden onset, very sudden offset, uh, doesn't seem to have functional impact. So not at all like this child, not at all like the children we've taken care of. So we don't think that that is similar. Um, I didn't mention that the other thing in the differential for this child when we first saw him would have been acute COVID as well if he had had a positive swab, because you can imagine a child with a recent infection might still be PCR positive. And because COVID itself can have significant heart involvement and even coronary artery brightness uh, on an echo, uh, that Acute infection is also something we consider because obviously we would treat that a little bit differently. 
The interesting thing that happens as well. So this child was in fall of 2021, I believe you said. So at that time, most children had not been exposed. Vaccines weren't available for children and they had not. uh, So this was likely their first infection, which would add up with um, vaccination being protective. Prior infection is probably protective too. So uh, we would see a lot of children relative to the number of cases that were detected in children. When we hit the Omicron wave, we had had quite a number of children with MISC due to what was presumably Delta, which was circulating in Nebraska at the time. And so when we came into January and we started seeing such a big increase in cases of acute infection in children, we were very, very nervous that we were then going to be overwhelmed with children with MISC, and it did not happen. And (laughs) I was on regional calls with other pediatric providers, and I'd be like, are you guys seeing MISC? What's happening? And they're like, yeah, we're not really seeing it either. We're like, Okay, we'll take it. So I think it's also quite possible, given that most of infections in children have happened during the prior school year last year, um, that prior infection was also protective to children and vaccination was protective to children. Whether that's also a different in how Omicron is as a virus is unclear because we don't know in advance who's going to get it. So we can't follow them prospectively and say, okay, let's see when you get infected with this virus, if you get MISC, right? So we don't know if now that people kind of have some baseline immunity, maybe we're not going to see MISC and it'll be something I tell my medical grandchildren about, you know, back in the day when we took care of MISC or not, but it could still happen to a susceptible child for sure. Uh, So it should be something we still think about. But I don't know if whatever next week's variant is, whether it will be a variant that is more like Delta in some important way, I don't understand. And we see more MISC again, or and it's due to the strain as well as to the immunity, or if having immunity is really protective and it doesn't matter about the strain. So I'm hoping that the immunity is going to be a lot of it and the strains stay non-MISC-eugenic, I guess you could say. So I'm hoping this is something that becomes an uncommon diagnosis going forward and not a common diagnosis. I hesitate to ask the question because I'm sure the recommendations are in flux, but if this patient isn't vaccinated and they recover from MISC well, is there a specific timeline that you recommend for vaccination or anything surrounding that? So the guidance for the past several months, so I think it's fairly stable, is that you should wait at least 90 days. This is different than after acute infection. You should wait at least 90 days. And if you have a cardiologist, your cardiologist should say you're recovered. Just in case. (laughs) Right. We want those children to get vaccinated, but the recommendation is to be cautious and make sure that they have recovered before you give them that next dose. 
I will say that of the over a hundred children that we have had with it, um, only a couple had previously been vaccinated and not necessarily recently. So I do think immunity is very important and we would certainly want to have them be as protected as possible. You did a great job describing a lot of the age components of the epidemiology, but is there any other considerations you take into factor with, uh, say, ethnicity or anything like that with uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections and MISC? Okay, my statement's not going to be 100% data-driven, but early on there was a lot of discussion about it being more common in Black children or uh, Asian children in certain populations. I would say that I think it probably at least very heavily matches who was at risk of being exposed to infection. So all of our early patients were children of frontline workers, uh, people who worked in grocery stores or healthcare or meatpacking plants, because we have a lot of those in Nebraska, and that their families were exposed to infection earlier on than other families. And as time went by, as it spread through different groups across Nebraska, that was reflected in the patients that we took care of with MISC. So at least anecdotally, I would say that it had a lot to do with who was at risk of infection rather than some underlying genetic thing. Now, there may also be some underlying genetic thing that has an impact on that. And there are studies that have some data that do look like there is some influence there. But I would say a lot of the data collected early on, I feel like was very biased by who was exposed. And they may not have been diagnosed at the same rate either, because these are people who don't necessarily have the same level of access to medical testing and medical care. So I think that we don't quite know what that denominator was either. Yeah. So, you know, many who, you know, if you listen to Febrile, you may realize that I have largely avoided not COVID in general, but sort of COVID related topics as the primary episode topic. And a lot of that was just to give a little bit of longevity to episodes because there were a lot of things for acute COVID management and new data that that was a bit in flux. But thanks to Jimmy, we have this awesome overview of MISC. And fortunately, I think we're in a place where we're seeing less of it, like you mentioned. And you've answered a lot of the big questions I wanted to make sure that we covered, especially the questions that come from families, such as recurrence risk and what to do as far as vaccination planning. I just wanted to emphasize some learning points that you talked about a little bit earlier and just thinking about the compare contrast of MISC versus Kawasaki, which can be a real struggle clinically. And of course, ultimately, this relies on testing and exposure history. But Alice, you mentioned that MISC tends to affect older children and adolescents in particular. 
and really not so much in infants and young children like we typically would see with classic Kawasaki disease. And I think the heart failure, myocardial dysfunction, shock type picture tends to be more common in MIC rather than Kawasaki. But the degree of true coronary artery involvement, meaning these aneurysms, you know, in MIC might not be as comparable to the classic Kawasaki risk. And this patient example had a little bit of a mixed picture from a cardiac standpoint, but I thought was nice because it emphasized how GI symptoms are often quite prominent when these children present. And the other thing that we did touch on as well is just comparing what does MISC look like versus severe acute COVID can be really challenging as well. And I I think emphasizing here, we didn't talk about it as much, but that severe pneumonia or respiratory failure is going to be more prominent with severe acute COVID, whereas MISC tends to be more of the shock and and or impaired cardiac function. And a lot of the features of MISC, such as uh, GI symptoms and mucocutaneous changes and the super, super elevated inflammatory markers are pretty rare in acute COVID. Um, so I just, <laughs> I wanted to emphasize those because I think, uh, especially as we see less patients, hopefully this is a good reminder or overview of uh, comparing these two entities that already were, you know, Kawasaki wasn't a particularly easy thing to diagnose before. So in addition to this, are there any other pearls or take-home points that you want to make sure that we emphasize as we wrap up this case? So I guess two additional things that you might find helpful. One is that the American Academy of Pediatrics has a very nice MISC interim guidance which walks through many of these points one paragraph at a time and is a nice collected summary that will be kept up to date, including things we haven't discussed like infection prevention measures when caring for these patients. The other little clinical pearl is to remember that when you use IVIG and uh, most other antibody combination antibody products, that there is an amount of time you need to wait to use live vaccines, specifically MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella. And the reason that you have to wait is because, not because it's unsafe, but because the antibodies in that product provide enough protection against infection with your vaccine strain that you just don't get enough replication of the vaccine strain for it to work. So it's not unsafe. It's just a little bit pointless. So there's a very nice table in the AAP Red Book, which goes through by dose, depending on for which reason you're using IVIG. You might give a different dose for ITP or uh, other conditions where it's used, and it will tell you how long you need to wait before you give live vaccines. A child this age would be coming up on their sort of pre-kindergarten second dose uh, might be due soon. So it's worth reminding them. The thing I would caution against is that very often what parents hear is that their child should not get any vaccine after IVIG. And that is not correct. 
it's specifically the live vaccines, MMR and varicella, that need to wait until they will be effective. But if they are due for their seasonal flu shot or a COVID shot or any of their other shots, their tetanus booster, they should get them. Yes, that's a great reminder. Um, So thank you so much to Jimmy for making this awesome episode. And of course, we love having any and all MedPeds representation on Febrile. And I know you guys in Nebraska have a lot of MedPeds presence too. We have a combination MedPeds infectious disease track record. We have faculty who are MedPeds ID. And our current fellow is MedPeds ID. We are very strong in supporting our MedPeds colleagues. And we would love to talk to you about doing MedPeds infectious disease training here with some spectacular opportunities and close collaboration with our partners in and around town and across the state. Great. Uh, well, thank you both again. For all our listeners, please don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where we store our consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.